0: At risk of, of, of embarrassing um, anybody in this room, um, I just have to tell you, like, something that has happened in our, our family, and it's maybe humorous to some, probably sad to others. Uh, but so when, when my children have come to age, not all of them have, you know, when they hit their adolescent years and teenage years, and this is true, um, and realized that, like, my son actually was attracted to girls, and my daughter was actually attracted to guys, Um, my wife and I, I kid you not, we like gave each other high fives, right? It's like kind of like, thank the Lord for heterosexual attraction, you know? You don't see that on TV right now, right? Thank the Lord for heterosexual attraction. And, you know, I'm pretty sure if I was to go back and talk to my mom and dad when I turned into a teenager, it would have been the opposite. Oh, here we go. He's attracted to girls now. And my my sisters, oh, they're attracted to boys now. And just think, man, my how times have changed, right? My how times have changed. And I, I say that with all sensitivity because we have parents um, in this church who have not had that um, response um, for all their children. And it's a, it's a, it's a difficult one. Now, we have been reflecting on in most of the introductions to the messages the kind of change that we 're in uh, as a people and um, living in a um, as followers of Jesus in a changing time and um, how we do that now in one sense, as I know we have said before and maybe you 've thought it's, it's, in one sense it 's lamentable what we see in another sense I' just thinking you know it 's also kind of an exciting time to live it 's An exciting time to be a Christian. And the reason I say that is because it sure seems to me that that, um, the opportunity for us to live out our faith, you know, publicly and boldly and with conviction and compassion. um, That we are going to shine far more brightly in the midst of a darkening world than we would have otherwise. I mean, you you can't see the, the, the stars in the daytime, but you sure can't see them at night. And as our culture goes one way into darkness and if God's people remain true to the cross and to Jesus and to love and to faith and to the teachings of Christ, well, there's going to be a, a marked difference between Christians and the world. As I said, what, what an a, a amazing time to live. It, it, it's probably going to be a time in which it costs us something that it hasn't cost previous generations uh, because, and this is a kind of a generalization, that in the past, our culture, or let me just rephrase that, the morality of our culture and the morality of the Judeo-Christian faith was roughly the same. You follow? Like that is people in our culture, whether we're believers or not, roughly believed in the same rights or wrongs. And so given that alignment, that general alignment, that, that culture and Christianity had the same basic values and ethics and morality, it was difficult in terms of behavior to see the difference. I, I have, and I'm sure you have too, met an older generation that is, is, uh, works hard, has integrity, doesn't believe in lying, and it, it, you know, live upright lives that aren't believers. And so given that alignment, it's, it's hard sometimes to see a marked difference between believers and unbelievers. Here's what it's like now, shifted. The morality of our culture and the morality of Christianity are now different, very different. And um, that means for us, on the positive side, that we can shine. On not so much the negative side, but on the hard side, is that we as a church, the church in general, the church here in the United States, whether Episcopal, Presbyterian, Baptist, or Lutheran, have to make choices. This or this. There's, a, there's an old Yiddish, uh, German-Jewish uh, proverb that goes like this. Um, and Woody Allen actually quoted it and made it popular. It's like, you can't ride two horses with one behind. Now, that's the church-friendly translation of that. You can't ride two horses with one behind. You can't go in two different directions. You have to go one way or the other. You have to make a choice. It seems to me, in our time, we have to decide which horse we're going to ride. Culture or Christ? Culture or Christ? This time of great decision, a time of great crossroads, and every individual in here, regardless of how old or young, are going to have to come to your own conclusions. Which am I going to ride? Because you can't ride two horses with one behind. Now, the reason I intro it's Jonah this way, is because Jonah's one of those books that presses the whole idea of choice, of making a decision. In fact, it does so side by side with another great truth that oftentimes seem contradictory. That is, the book of Jonah, looked at from kind of a general big lens, it presses God's absolute sovereign rule over the world, and at the same time, it presses or brings into focus the need for a choice to be made. Which is why the book at the end ends in a question. It appeals to our wills. It appeals to our sense of choice. Now, I know that as soon as you start talking about God's sovereignty and human will and choice, um, the Reformed brothers in the audience tend to get a little twitchy. Um, Maybe hair starts to stand up. Because oftentimes when we emphasize the Reformed faith, the belief in God's complete grace, that we are saved by grace and grace alone... Um, that we are fundamentally depraved and God draws us out, um, that his choice precedes our choice. Well, um, that when you believe that. Sometimes when you talk about choice, it it, it kind of like uh, makes you shudder a little bit. Um, But here's the thing, and I consider myself completely committed to the Reformed faith, at least in terms of salvation, is is the Bible, while it insists that God is completely, 100% in control of all things, his kingdom rules over all, as David would say. At the same time, there's a constant appeal throughout the whole Bible for us to make decisions, to, to respond. Um, most of the New Testament books were written with an, with a, with an agenda in mind. How are you going to respond to my letter to, say, the Galatians or to the Corinthians? Like, you've you got to make a change. So it appeals to a sense of choice and will. And whenever you destroy those two truths, which sometimes seem Contrary, my choice, God's choice, my will, God's will, um, well, then we end up distorting Christianity and I think end up with a very diseased congregation. Those two things come into focus in Jonah. And I I just want to take a moment. Here's where we're going to go. I want to talk about the first one, God's absolute sovereignty from the point of Jonah. And then I want to press home the idea that there is a choice to be made also from Jonah. Those two things. And at the very end, I want to make an appeal to us as a congregation to make a choice, okay? That's where we're going. Sovereignty, um, choice, and then a final decision to be made. Now, for those of us who, um, here's the two truths, basically, that I'm going to be pressing home, embracing God's absolute rule over all creation, that is God's will or rule or sovereignty, and embracing the need to make a choice. That is my will, my response. Um, And a little caveat here, if, you're, if you've been born again and the Spirit has given you new life and you're a new creation, guess what? You have a new will, too. Uh, you have the ability to choose and according to the new desires that God has placed into your heart. So there is, there is the capacity within the, the, the human heart to respond to God. Um, that is the new creation heart. So we're going to talk about it in that light. So those two things. If you're brand new with us and you haven't heard the book of Jonah, um, super quick. God tells them to do something. He goes the opposite way, act of rebellion. God chases him down through a fish, the most popular part of the, part, part, part of the story. That was a typo of the lips, okay? That's the part people remember about, about Jonas, getting swallowed by the fish. But that fish was a, like, a, like a sovereign way of saying, no, nope, you're coming back. You're doing what I told you to do, whether you like it or not. It's my will at this point over your will. Well, he, he does what God wants him to do. He preaches a really short five-Hebrew-word message to the people of Nineveh. Wouldn't you know it? They repent. And then he's furious and upset about it. That's chapter 4. He's upset. He's bitter. Um, he's angry. He says, I want to die. And then the, the, the book ends in this, this argument between God and the prophet Jonah. That's how it ends, um, with an argument. And the very last uh, grammatical statement of the whole book is a question on the part of Yahweh to his here is a wayward prophet. The first half, you see, a kind of active rebellion. The second half is more of a passive rebellion. But that's 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 kind of the story of Jonah. Well, through the book, you see really clearly a strong sense of God's sovereign will. Um, I mean, that's where I got the title from, it's, or, or the, what what informed the title is the battle of wills between God and a prophet. And you see, both in terms of Um, The action, in terms of the confession, and also in terms of what creation does that God is clearly in control. So, by Jonah's own confession, um, in chapter 1, and I'm just going to kind of jump through the book here, is uh, where he confesses who he is, he identifies himself. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is his theological way of saying Yahweh presides over all of creation. He's not a God with a little tiny parcel. He is the God of it all. He created land and seas, the God of heaven. Therefore, he is is the one who directs and commands and reigns and controls and is in charge of all of it. That is a statement of, of God's sovereign reign. He owns it. He runs it. But that comes into even clearer focus in terms of how um, God is described in relation to creation itself in the particulars. So you kind of run your way through the book and you realize God is in charge of all these different facets of creation and all those different facets of creation actually submit to him. So God hurls a great wind upon the sea. That's chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 17, God appoints or prepares a fish. Um, chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and the spit, spit, uh, fish did what God told him to do, vomited out Jonah. Um, chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up. Um, chapter 4, verse 7, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant. And chapter 4, verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind to come upon Jonah and blast his head with sunbeams. You see, it's like he's God who's commanding the storm, God who's commanding the fish, God who's commanding the plant, God who's commanding the worm, and God who's commanding the wind. See, the, the, the full picture is that Yahweh commands all of creation. And all of the creation responds to him in submission. And then there's the story of, of Jonah himself. You know, after his act of rebellion and the fish swallows him, he comes back, and it's almost, I think I used this before, it's almost as if he has the arm behind his back, and Yahweh's like saying, listen, you're going to do what I told you to do. And, and Job's go, Job, uh, Jonah's going, you know, uncle, I'll do it, I'll do it. I don't want to go back to the fish for three days. That is, even Yahweh's will trumps the kind of rebellious will of this prophet by the name of Jonah. So it's, you, you can see from the story that, that God is in control in this, this whole journey over creation, over plants and wind and and storms and so forth. And yet, it's not just kind of like he's in control in some kind of purposeless way. All of that is moving in the direction of God showing mercy to his enemies. Or if you're to branch this out a little bit broader, all of God's workings in our world, um, in creation, in wind and rain and movements of nations, is moving us to to kind of a two-part conclusion, that is, of salvation and judgment, um, of curse and blessing. And that's how, that's how the Bible, Bible ends, and God is maneuvering all those things to this end. Now, that belief that God is absolutely, what, how did I put it, ruling over all of creation is a, is a foundational staple of the Christian and Jewish faith. God's in charge. Even when things are dark and even when things are chaotic, and even when lawlessness is, is, is increasing, God is still in charge. You read the book of Revelation, one of the darkest books, I think, and also brightest books at the same time, in the whole of the Bible. When God is unleashing his punishment on a world that is this runaway with w- wickedness and lawlessness... At no time is God seen as off the throne, which is why chapters 4 and 5 are so precious to that whole book. Before you ever get to the dark parts, you see that God is firmly planted on the throne and the lamb is at the right hand, um, bringing history to a close. The idea being God is still reigning over it all. Now, as I said, that's, that's a foundation stone for us. And, and we should call that to mind all the time. You read the newspaper, just remember, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Um, when things are hard, remember the Lord still reigns, let the earth rejoice. When there's things you don't understand, we still believe by faith the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Recognizing that the Lord reigns over our executive branch, though some of you may doubt that, He reigns over the judicial branch and who sits in those chairs and the decisions that they make. He reigns over Syria and he reigns over Chattanooga. Let the earth rejoice, the Lord reigns. And where we lose that sense of confidence in God's absolute rule, we find ourselves panicking, fearful, um, lacking courage and boldness because we don't think he's really in charge. Okay, that's truth one, and I hope if you're in one of those places, you'll hear it. Man, that is such an important truth for me to hear, and I hope you hear it. Great comfort in that truth. But now let's flip over to the to the other side of the equation, the the part that we play, the need to response, the response, respond, to submit, to listen, to act. That also is, you know, you read this book of Jonah, and you you realize this. Like, there's a there, there, God is actually appealing to the will of his prophet. The final section, which we read last week, the final section in which uh, Yahweh is arguing and contending with the prophet, he's, like, endeavoring to, to get him to rethink things. Uh, he brings the object lesson into his life, right? He brings the plant, and then the worm attacks the plant, and then they're scorching wind. You know, hits him in the head, and, and he's hot and faint. And, and it's a little object lesson in order to enlighten him. It's, 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 it's an amazingly gracious, patient picture of God um, seeking to persuade his prophet, appealing to his sense of choice and will. Like, where are you going to go with this, Jonah? I mean, part of the brilliance of the book is that it ends without an ending. I mean, it, the last thing you hear from him is, I want to die. The last thing we see of him is him under a hut, angry at the Lord. And the question is, what happens next? There's no end to the story. Well, that's, it's, 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 it's part of the design to get us to think so that we ourselves and our lives and our choices are the rest of the story. How are you going to respond? In particular, if you kind of comb through the story, you realize that there is an emphasis on listening, trusting, and submitting to God's word. And when I talk about choices and will and that, um, the need for us to, to, uh, to recognize there's a part that we play, um, these are the ways that I'm, I'm thinking in particular with respect to Jonah. Jonah. And the contrast within the book is, on the one hand, you get to the end and you realize, Jonah, you're just not listening. You're just not getting it. And he's like a really bad teenager that, you know, just no matter how much you talk and how much you lecture and how much you try and lay out the, the blueprint of, of bad decisions, you're just comatose and they just don't get it. I, seriously, that's, that, I get the picture that Jonah's kind of a, just a, a, a teenager is going through a tantrum and at the end of the day, he's not listening to the Lord. He's not getting the point. He's not repenting. And but, and the irony, of course, is that he's a prophet. He he's, has access to divine revelation. We've already heard him quote from the Psalms in chapter 2 of Jonah and also quote from Exodus in chapter 4 of uh, uh, Jonah. So he knows the word. He's heard the word. But he is obviously resistant to the word. Whereas the Ninevites, the, the enemies of Israel, like what I told you, they, gave, they, they were given five words in Hebrew, five words of revelation. You know what? They listened. They listened. They heard. They heard. Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. you are like, oh, my goodness. The one who has all the revelations isn't listening, and the one who don't, the ones who don't, are listening. And then the text goes on to say that they, they believed the word. That is, they believed it to be true. They trusted it to be true, which then prompted them to submit themselves before the Lord in repentance, and in kind of an amazing display of, of repentance. And that's chapter 3. Whereas, again, you don't find Jonah, he doesn't seem to be listening. Um, What he says about the Lord and his being deeply displeased at what the Lord did gives us a sense that he thought something was wrong with the character of God, so he doesn't trust him. And at the end, we're left with uh, an open-ended ending, giving us the sense that he wasn't in a place of submission, a place of passive resistance to the Lord. So I hope you see that that's that's like God is appealing to the will, he's appealing to choice, he's, he's and, and through this book, he's appealing to us too. And part of the um I'm not sure exactly how to say this. Um the surprise in this book is that. The very one who should have been listening wasn't, and the one who, ones who weren't were. That is, the person in the story who's not listening, not trusting, and not submitting is an expert in religion. It's like you and me. A church goer, a synagogue goer, someone who knows the word, someone who goes to BSF, someone who gets up and does devotions every day. That is... The one person in this book who is given to this kind of passive resistance to God's word and God's will um, is the one who's supposed to love God the most. And there's a sense in which I think the book then suggests that sometimes the most stubborn, the most close-eared, closed-hearted, passively resistant people to God's word are not those who are outside the church but those who are inside the church why else would he choose a prophet just to remind us that listen it's really easy to sit here and have so much Bible around us in mp3 form in video form in in written form in blog form and And pretty soon it becomes like white noise. You don't even hear it anymore. The sensitivity is gone. The the willingness to just listen with fresh, humble ears. Say, Lord, speak to me. My heart is ready for you. I know that my life is broken, and I want to hear how you want me to be healed. I want to hear the word of Christ. I want to hear conviction. I want to be humbled and all of those things. Listening ears that then trust that the Lord is good in all that he has done, that he is not a mean God, but he is a God who has has laid down his life for us to satisfy both justice and unleash mercy, and then out of love for what he has done for us to simply and humbly submit to him. That is to say, this word is for the church. This is for us. This isn't for those outside this wall, these walls. This, This is for us. I can hear the spirit of God saying to all of us in this room. Is your heart still beating with what my heart beats for? I pity the nations. Do you? I'm speaking. Are you listening? Do you still hear my voice? Do you still want to hear my voice? Are you receptive to my voice? Are you willing to trust my words enough that you're actually willing to submit to them? And be my people? Or... Are you going to come week after week in this kind of justified passive inertia and just not hear me anymore? So having said that, let me, can I just press this in two directions? that are One has to do more with the, the book itself, and this, the other one has to do with the context in which we live. Let me push this in the direction of like, the bottom line. God is sovereign, yes, but God appeals to us to make decisions and choose um, to listen to his word, trust him, and submit to him. Let me push this in the direction of morality and mission. Morality and mission. We have to pause and ask ourselves a very important question as a church, and you have to ask the question and answer it as an individual. Whose voice am I listening to? When it comes to defining the difference between right and wrong, There should be one answer to that. And that should be, I'm listening with open ears to the voice of Christ spoken or speaking through the scriptures to me. Not what the current of culture is saying is now right versus wrong. We can't ride two horses, can't do it. With one behind. You have to have to choose Christ or culture when it comes to understanding ethics right versus wrong. That includes sexual ethics. That includes the issues of homosexuality and gay marriage. It includes also, just not to let it you know focus on one particular group. It means listening to the voice of Christ when it comes to how to love your wife. It comes listening to the voice of Christ when it comes to the words you use to either destroy somebody or build them up Um, it comes in the form of words of Christ that tells us not to um, seek to be served but to serve and to be able to say I hear you so simply put in terms of pressing this in the direction of morality um, are you listening and whose voice are you listening to Which horse are you going to ride? With conviction and compassion, of course. Now let me push this in a slightly different direction. That of mission, of life. The heart of God that's revealed in this book is a heart of mercy for his enemies. Um, An expansive mercy to the nations. That's where this is going. This is the sense of God's heart. And people who love God... um, People who love God should, underline should, carry the same heart and the same compassion. Our heart should be aligned with what God desires. And interesting enough, God has ordained to use humans, broken humans, like you, me, and Jonah, to accomplish that mission of mercy. He could have sent an angel. He could have sent a talking donkey, but he didn't. He sent Jonah. In the way, same way that he sent Christ into the world, in flesh and blood, to save it. In the same way that Christ sends us into the world, in flesh and blood, to be ministers of mercy. To use everything God has given to us. The time, talent, and treasure. In every place God has put us, in terms of neighbors and work, family, in church, to do one thing, and that is to magnify Christ, his work, his love, and his mercy so that people will hear him and be saved. Simple question for us is is that your direction in life? That wasn't Jonah's direction. He obviously didn't want this ministry of mercy. And he kind of lived in a sense of passive resistance. Now, I don't know that you here, us here, are living in passive resistance. Um, I think probably more um, true to the day and to the time is we often justify our lack of mission-oriented life. And by mission-oriented life, I just simply mean what Paul means when he says, listen, whether in life or in death, the only thing that matters to me is Jesus be exalted. That Oftentimes, we fail to do that because we justify ourselves by saying, well, I'll do it tomorrow when my life is less cluttered and less busy. And we use it as kind of a justification for not listening, trusting, and submitting to him and his, his will. Now Here's the deal. Your life's not going to get less busy. It's just not. You're not going to declutter your life. You know, my father's almost 80 years, years old. He, he told me, he says, I am busier today than I did when I was teaching fifth grade. It's not going to get less busy. It's, it's not about, hey, I will begin to serve Christ in his work and his mission, seeking first the kingdom of, of God and his righteousness um, after your life isn't busy, because that's never going to happen. It's just serving and magnifying Christ amidst the busyness of your life and not making excuses for it. Or another justification would be just I just feel inadequate, so I, I, I you know I'm just kind of I kind of retreat and um, I'm not engaged in my neighborhood and so forth because I'm just inadequate. And it's like, you know what? We're all inadequate. Um, I am inadequate to be a pastor. I am inadequate to be a husband. I am inadequate to be a father. Paul would say I'm inadequate to be an apostle and a minister of the new covenant, but. The fact of the the matter is, our adequacy comes from Christ and His Spirit, and He works through broken, jacked up people like you and me. So, all that to say, whatever excuses there are out there for justifying a lack of engaged life for the sake of Christ and His mission and His kingdom, to be able to show with our lives and words, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, we must put those aside. And allow ourselves to hear and to respond. So here, 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 here it is. Like, Is your life engaged in the mission of Christ? Which horse, horse are you riding? Are you living for you or are you living for Christ? You can't ride two horses with one behind. Where do you stand in relationship to what's true versus untrue, right versus wrong? You can't ride two horse, horses with one behind. And I think the Spirit would say to the church today... Which do you choose? That's the end of the book. Parkway, which do you choose? As awkward as the book is, ending with a question mark, I'm done.